Welcome to the Healing Place podcast, a space filled with inspirational stories of hope, along with practical advice for your healing journey. Your host is Terry Welbrock, trauma warrior, writer, speaker, blogger, therapy dog handler, and founder of the Sammy's Bundles of Hope Project. As a survivor and a thriver, Terry's mission is to shine the light of hope into the world by interviewing insightful guests from across the globe. Please stay tuned at the end of today's interview as we honor our sponsors. The Healing Place podcast is a fiscally sponsored project of Fractured Atlas. Now, here's your host and trauma warrior, Terry Welbrock. Welcome, everybody, to the Healing Place podcast. I am your host, Terry Welbrock, and really thrilled to have with me today Kelly McDaniel. And I'm going to read this because we just talked about it, and then my menopause brain said goodbye. So, <laughs> author of Ready to Heal, which was released in 2008, and the upcoming book, Mother Hunger, which that is what we're going to dive into a little bit today. Uh, Kelly has created healing intensives for women who are ready to, uh, to dive into their healing journey. So welcome, Kelly. Thank you for having me, Terry. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm just, um, I'm excited to hear more about Mother Hunger. You had sent me a, a working piece of the book and I read it and just, um, well, I was captivated by it and mm-hmm. sent back my response on it. And I loved your, I loved your response to me that, wow, you are a trauma warrior. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I appreciated your candid sharing about why the concepts in mother hunger resonated for you. And I'm wondering if there was one in particular that caught you that we might start with. Sure. Absolutely. Go ahead. Whatever concept. Oh my God. Yeah. I'll have to, I'll have to go back because I I said, like, I, I think when I responded to you, I talked about because mother hunger, the, the whole idea behind it is um, it's, it's attachment early childhood attachment, um, I don't want to say yeah. disorder, although it can be an early type, they sometimes label it disorder, but yeah. um, that they're a connection between mother and daughter, correct? Correct. And so I, I just think what struck me in particular, and not so much with my relationship, but with a sibling, and what I noticed was this relationship of uh, with the sibling between my mom and my sibling, um, was just this disconnect and and the pain from both of their perspectives but I mean obviously you come at it I think more from you know the child looking for this connection with a mother that they they just didn't have yeah exactly yeah and I'm glad you mentioned the word attachment disorder because I think in the medical language um there are all kinds of disorders that go or that mimic some of the symptoms of mother hunger uh substance abuse disorder um bipolar disorder borderline personality disorder and attachment disorder so what i've really done in this book but also just in my work is to reframe this a bit that this is so common that I I find a hard time calling it a disorder. Uh, So I really look at it as an attachment injury. It's an injury that happens that's so young. And anytime we've been injured, our bodies are so resilient that we find a way to adapt to that injury so that we can keep going. And based on the level of injury, the adaptations will reflect those. So, um, Mother hunger is kind of on a spectrum and there are different forms of mother hunger that will tell the story of the original injury. Yeah. Very powerful. Yeah. um, And I'm happy to elaborate about that. I think that mother hunger almost speaks for itself. The name being hungry for love, for a specific kind of love. Right, and it, it makes me think of a longing, a longing for a connection. Yes, um, yes, and yes. it's a felt body longing. 
you know, this kind of longing is not an intellectual longing. It's not a cognitive longing. It's a felt sense of a longing because our first experience with our mother happens way before we have language or cognition. Right. So in those first three years, um, even beginning in utero, we are experiencing whether or not the world is a trustworthy place, the world is a safe place, whether or not we're going to be loved before we know what's happening. Right. But our body retains all that. Yeah, I've heard that before. I, I had done a um, EFT, which is emotional freedom okay. technique oh. and tapping. And um, the practitioner that I was working with, that came up. And I didn't even know it was an issue, but not feeling wanted in utero. And that was, oh my gosh, I cried and cried and cried. But yes, there are, and there can even be memories from that. Um, oh, completely. Completely. Yeah. I'm so glad that you know that. Yeah. Our little bodies, they know. And so sometimes when I'm working with a woman and I'll ask her, what was your mother feeling when she was pregnant with you? The first look I get is, are you crazy? Like, whatever. And I'm, I'm like, just bear with me. And, and I sit with her. And if our body has someone to sit with while we go back to that type of memory, our body knows we're safe. We're not alone going to that memory. That's hard to do if you're in a room alone. It's not going to let you do it um, because our body protects us, right, from that information. But everyone can find it. Yeah. And anyone that did not just instantly kind of go, oh, she was either scared, she was unprepared she was overwhelmed she was excited she was over the moon she was thrilled when she found out it was a girl she didn't want a girl she didn't want to be pregnant she was in an unhappy marriage so she was frightened i mean the stories are immense right right well and again again i go back to when i also did emdr which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing and again those things it's in there those body memories and as you tap into it, it is amazing what, what comes forth. So, yes, I'm glad, I'm glad you're doing that and allowing people to connect to that, which is just beautiful. So I think I forgot to say, because we got excited about the books when I did the intro, that you, you also do therapy work. I do. Um, my therapy work is on hold right now while I finish the manuscript. But um, I used to do kind of traditional therapy, just outpatient, hour, hourly hour and a half generally. But as I got more into this work, more people started finding me that had read ready to heal and they were finding me from all over the world. And you can't really do deep trauma work of this nature on a video. So I designed these intensives that are 10 to 13 hours and women fly in and work with me. I do a thorough intake to make sure this is the appropriate healing modality um, most women who finally are ready to look at their mother hunger are over the age of 50. Like this wound does not really present itself until mother is either no longer on the planet or very much older. Um, we're older. The only exception to that, I have worked with younger women, women in their 30s, because their mothers died so young. Okay. that they were forced to look at mother hunger. So if mom dies young, then this issue is going to surface. But if not, if mom is still on the planet, the, the, the thought of talking about her in this kind of way feels like a betrayal sometimes, or it feels too scary, or our body is still protecting us with what I call blindness. Well, this is a concept by Jennifer Freyd that she came out with in um, Oregon. She's a researcher. Um, she wrote the book Blind to Betrayal. And the book is actually written for women who have been betrayed by intimate partners. Well, her theory is perfect for what I find with women with mother hunger because our first intimate partner is our mother. Oh, right. Yeah. She's our first love. Yeah. She is who holds us, feeds us, delights in us, takes care of us, or not. Right. And when she doesn't, it registers as a betrayal. Yes. And then we inadvertently, unconsciously repeat those betrayals in our 
friendships with other women, our, friend, our romantic relationships, our work relationships, and if we have children, with our children. And I think that's where mother hunger is a difficult concept to learn about when we've already had a kid and we realize, oh, what did I do? So uh, I always try to invite women who are learning about this um, because the shame is huge to keep the focus on themselves as a daughter. Right, right. Well, and it makes me think how how critical and important it, your work is to reach out to those who are in their 20s and 30s and thinking of having children to yeah. do that healing work, to stop that, that cycle of generational, I, I don't want to say abuse, but that generational disconnect, I guess. Well, it is an intergenerational transmission epigenetically of whatever happened to a grandmother that would have been abusive that then she passed to her daughter who then passes to her daughter. Like you're exactly right. If, if women before they have a baby are aware of what they're carrying, that cycle can be stopped during that first formative three years, which is the most important time. The beautiful thing is though, Daughters always want their mother, always. And so even when a woman is coming to me and her children are grown and she's healing her own mother hunger, but then realizes why her children are alienated from her, she has a chance to go back if they're daughters. Um, Sometimes it can be challenging with sons who have mother hunger. But, um, But yes, some of my favorite clients are the ones that are pregnant and or in early uh, prenatal months, the fourth trimester, that first three months, if I can be with her to help her bond, it's the greatest work. In fact, that's where I'm going to be just doing some volunteer work. So it's just, it makes me happy. It makes me feel like I'm infecting people with an anti-shame virus. Yes. That's so beautiful. It's really, it's chronic shame. You know, if we, if we aren't, Okay, so just to kind of really look at what mother hunger is, I've distilled it into something that makes it digestible because it's such a broad concept. But mother hunger is the loss of either maternal nurturing, maternal protection, or maternal guidance. These are three distinct categories, three different things we need from our mothers in order to become who we are. And and if we miss all three, this is the chapter I'm working on right now, Yes. I call that third degree mother hunger and third degree mother hunger. I don't know where I came up with that name, but it just kind of frames the burn of having none of that. Right. Without any of it, we are truly lost to ourselves. And that's when our symptomology looks more pathological in in diagnostical terms, but it's not. It's just a profound, profound injury. And most of us um, who have third degree mother hunger also rely on addictive use of something because that's how we're medicating the intolerable pain. Right. Um, But, you know, so you can have someone who missed out on maternal nurturing. Maybe mom was cold, removed, unavailable, but she was very protective Um, so that's a different form of mother hunger. Or maybe we had a mother who was playful and fun, great to be with, all the kids wanted to be at our house, but she did not protect us from an abusive father um, or or her own mother. Um, She just didn't set boundaries and wasn't able to protect. Then there are mothers that had, there are women who had nurturing and they had some protection, but their mother wasn't someone they actually admired or respected and therefore couldn't offer guidance. And so these women sometimes are hungry for a woman who is inspiring and could guide them. Um, And those daughters are really lucky if they had a father who was guiding because they can really benefit from that. They usually do really well in business because they got some good guidance from him. Right. Uh, But they're still yearning for a mother figure that is a woman that they like, Oh, I want to be like her. Yeah. Wow. And again, a million thoughts pop into my head, but I think to my own mother, um, and when you talked about the self-medicating, because I th- I told you before we recorded, and, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, but my, my mom is celebrating six months sober 
um, this month, which is amazing because she quit drinking at 83 years old. Um, but yeah, what, what happens in these last, I don't know, two years or so is I started, I remember standing at the end of a hospital bed in an ER when my mom was detoxing and she, the alcohol was, you know, was leaving her system. But I said, mom, and I'm sobbing. And I said, you have to start doing the healing work. What happened in your childhood? And man, did some issues with her mother start to surface. And I mean, other things as well. But we've talked a lot and I've just sat with her and, and honored my mom's story about her mother. And I've seen this healing shift happen with her, um, which, you know, maybe that's part of the reason why she's been able to do it this time. And, um, be six months sober at 84 years old. So I don't know. Hey, but, that's not a testimony for the, I mean, as long as we're on the planet, we have a chance Yeah. to heal and reconnect and have a different bond with our mothers. Yes. I mean, you're really giving your mother quite the gift and she is too, to come back more fully into presence and be able to give you those stories. Because if you know your grandmother's stories, those stories are in your body. That's going to help right. you. Right. And it's so true because I now look at my grandmother in a completely new light. Um, I always had a very sweet relationship with her. Um, she died when I was um, in my 20s. But now I just, I see when I look at a picture of her, I'm like, oh, I understand your sadness now. I understand why your eyes were always so sad. And so, again, it's just, yeah, it's helping heal, I guess, things that I didn't even know I carried. Exactly. Yeah. And so knowing now what you carry, how has that changed your healing? Right. Yeah. Well, it's been very powerful. And, and again, like you just said, helping mend and grow, I guess, my relationship with my mom. Um, and this, this, and, and watching my mom heal and, and reach these, these places in herself with her relationship with her mother. Oh my gosh. It's just been, again, makes my heart full with joy to know that she's going to leave this earth with, a, with, with peace or at least some more peace than she would have had, had she not started to deal with this. So. Well, what I love about that, too, is that when, when our mothers gain peace, we, we benefit from that. Yeah. It's just incredible. It's um, energetic. Her body and our body, is, it's linked. Yeah. It just is. And so we inherit her nervous system and some of her resilience and some of her trauma in utero. And, and then as we grow with her, but then we also get to inherit her healing. Yeah. Oh, that's so, so cool. Yeah. I work with mothers sometimes and they're learning and they're growing. They're so excited. They're like, I can't wait to go tell my daughter. I said, you know, you might not need to tell her. She'll <laughs> see it. She'll feel it. Just go be it. Yeah. And, and don't worry so much about telling her. Your behavior will tell her. Yeah. So, so now just to, what about those who, whose mother have passed or who, um, they just cannot connect or don't their, their boundaries are going to be violated if they do. What, what work or advice do you have for them? That's such a great question. Thank you for asking. Um, <clears throat> yeah, because now what we're talking about is third degree mother hunger in some way. So it's too, so we can have a mother who's no longer on the planet, but maybe she was wonderful. So that's going to be a different kind of healing. So I'm going to separate these two. Okay. Having a mother who is on the planet, but who is harmful. We can't go to her for healing. It's not a good idea at all. Right. Um, <clears throat> this can be someone um, who never offered us any nurturing any protection and any guidance. So she's not, she's not safe and she's not healing and she's not changing. We don't, we're not going to change with her. So um, in my first book, which was written for women who are recovering, well, identifying and recovering love addiction and sex addiction, I talked about how you've got to go into withdrawal. What I have since realized 
since writing that is since the mother was the first love, that's where we have to go into withdrawal. If she is an unsafe person, we have to go into withdrawal. We have to completely separate from her for a period, a period of time. And just like with any addiction, I, I start with 90 days, but oh my gosh. generally it's longer. And detox, literally detox from her interventions and from our yearning to, to reach her in whatever way. And, and some people have to quit calling her, um, quit texting her, have to stop that little girl inside that keeps going to the empty well for water. Oh my gosh. I, I just have to interrupt for one second because in July of 2019, standing on top of a mountain in Colorado, visiting my son who had moved out there, I received the phone call from my sister saying mom's in the hospital yet again and detoxing and went on a five day drinking binge. And I said, I'm done. And I walked away for three months and I didn't call her and I didn't see her. And I did, I said, I cannot do this anymore. You knew. And I knew. And that's, and for three months, when you said 90 days, I was like, oh my gosh, for three months, I did not talk to her. And you, Terry. Yeah. What was that for you? Oh my gosh. It was, well, one, it was incredibly difficult. I'm not going to lie. So hard. Very hard to do because I cried my eyes out because I yep. felt like, how can I abandon my elderly mother? How yep. can I do this to someone who's obviously hurting and in need of healing and pain? And I'm, I work as a healer. I work, this is what I do. How can I turn my back on my mother? But I also knew I could no longer go in and save the day for her. I could no longer be, she had to be her own hero. She was the one that had to do this. And when I, I just kept telling myself this, and then three months later, when she reached out, my phone rang, and for whatever reason, I answered it. And it's just been beautiful. We've been in a beautiful place ever since I spent yesterday with her, and we just laugh, and we enjoy each other's company, and it's just, it was a much-needed detox. Yeah, I'm so grateful that you told that story. <clears throat> Thank you, because I think that really illustrates what I'm saying, that sometimes yeah. you have to take a break and, and meet the anguish of being motherless for a period of time. Um, and then if your mother's making changes like yours is, you can come back. You're different, she's different, and you almost get to start again. So... I've seen that happen different ways. Like women will go into a detox. If their mother's not doing any changing, there's not necessarily a re-engagement. Sometimes there is, and I have different frameworks for how to re-engage. You know, the first one would be treat your mother like you do <clears throat> your favorite barista at Starbucks. Just very polite, but you don't tell her the details of your life um, mm. because she's not going to be a safe person for that. Um, and that seems to work really well after a woman's gone through detox and realized she no longer can go to her mother as a daughter. You don't, you just don't think of her as a mother. Right. And you find other mothers. So that's the work that's, that's long lasting. It takes a while. It's hard to find someone and grieve what you didn't have. Yes. But, um, women do it. And, um, so that, I think, am I answering the question about what oh, to do? Absolutely. Yes. With yeah. a mother who's still on the planet, still alive. <clears throat> if mom is gone and she was a lovely mother, that is just a, a empty void that will be forever ongoing work. Right. All of this actually is forever ongoing work, frankly. Um, but if she died and she was, I was just writing this section Daughters who um, experience different forms of abuse from their mother um, sometimes experience her death as a relief, especially if the mother was sexually abusive. Oh. That's a particularly shameful legacy for a daughter. Um, so there's sometimes so much relief that the healing is um, fairly fluid. But if she died so young that a daughter didn't have enough time with her, 
then there's a lot of grief as well as the need to rebuild with other mothers. So there's similarities in grief. There's similarities in needing other mothers. But then what the mother was like informs the, the grief process, which is really what mother hunger is, is a form of disenfranchised grief. Do you know what I mean by disenfranchised? Yes. Right. Yes. As far as, it, are you talking about, um, well, I'll let you explain it before I try to guess it. <laughs> well, yeah, because it, it, I think that it's one of those things that we're talking more about, but a lot of people don't know about it. Um, let's just, I think, let's think of cancer. If I were to tell you right now that I just got diagnosed with um, breast cancer and I'm in kind of the third or fourth degree stage, that this is pretty serious, I think instantly you would be feeling, oh my, you have a lot facing you. How can I be supportive? That's not the case when a woman has mother hunger. It's disenfranchised grief because it's not acknowledged by the culture. In fact, it's almost frowned upon by the culture. We don't have a bunch of support groups out there. And instantly people don't say, how can I help you? They're like, what's your problem? You don't appreciate your mother? Right. So it's very risky to talk about. People might shame you for having ambivalent feelings about your mother, anger, rage, sadness. And so the loneliness adds to the grief. And that's why I call it disenfranchised. Yes. So it prolongs the healing. It's almost more clear if your mother's dead. People can understand, oh, that's awful. But if you're kind of glad your mother's dead, who do you tell that to? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and you're, you are so very right. As I told you before we recorded, I'm that open book. And so I've put, I put my mom's journey and mine out on social media, on my Facebook page, my personal, not the podcast, but it's been this roller coaster ride of just chaotic healing <laughs> as I like to call it. But most people have been pretty supportive, but there have been people who have unfriended me or reached out and said, you're a horrible human being for putting your mom's story out there. She's right? so sweet. She's so beautiful. She's so wonderful. And I said, yes, but, but this disease, her alcoholism, um, you know, sometimes monsters can live in little old ladies. And so, um, yeah, and we would have these, I would try to engage in conversations with people about it because I want to shine a light on it like you're doing, that this is happening. And people, women are hurting um, because their mother needs healing and they are lost without this, this person, this connection. So, yeah. That's really well said. And I'm, I'm really impressed with your courage and bravery because yes. I don't think, it doesn't feel good to have someone um, not appreciate what we're doing. Um, And it takes a lot of courage to be out there in the arena. It reminds me of my favorite quote from Brene Brown, who says, if you're not out there slugging it out in the arena, I don't want to hear from you. (laughs) I love that. Right. (laughs) If you don't know what it feels like to be a target and to be carrying a message that might make you unpopular, you really have no business weighing in. Right. It's hurtful. Now, if you are out there and you do know what it feels like and you've got something that might help what I'm doing, even if it's criticism, bring it. Um, We can engage in a conversation about it. Exactly. Exactly. And I think when it comes to our mothers and daughters and just as a word about alcoholism, I just kind of want to say that um, what we're really carrying is decades, generational wounding from living in patriarchal culture. So every woman who was first a daughter, who becomes a mother, is bringing her own wound from her mother and her mother. And they've all grown up with patriarchal wounds. Some of them are over sexual wounds. Some of them are simply not having a voice or being silenced, not being appreciated. And that legacy, um, we can learn a lot from understanding the nature of epigenetic trauma. So for people that are inclined to, to know more about that, I, I think the person who's doing the most dynamic research is Dr. Rachel Yehuda out of Mount Sinai. 
she started studying Holocaust children, um, children of survivors who were showing the same symptomology of the post-traumatic stress that their parents, yeah. And looking at how the epigenetic, uh, epi literal means over, so over the gene. So it's actually a gene transformation, not actually the gene itself changing. Right. But okay. lifestyle can change the genes. Food can change the genes. Maternal facial expressions can change our genes. So if you have a mother who's frightened, her face is going to carry that fear. Her infant's going to pick it up. Wow. And so yeah. if you've got a grandmother that was tortured and, and was frightened, her granddaughter is likely going to pick that up. So that research, if you want the science, Rachel Yehuda has it. Now, what she's done that's even just as invigorating for my work with Mother Hunger is she studied the infants born to mothers who were at ground zero on 9-11. And those mothers who were in their late trimester, their last three months of pregnancy, their children show signs of the horror that their mother experienced. So in utero, they were picking up high levels of cortisol, which is what is the hormone that prompts us to flee or fight or tend or befriend. Those infants were getting flooded with it, essentially having like a panic attack in utero. Yeah. Wow. It's all just so, it's, it's very intriguing and powerful and yeah. Wow. Well, one of the questions that that popped into my head was, Um, so you, you've mentioned a few times as we've talked, um, having, oh, and I'm so, it's so just popped out of my head. This is why I need to write things down as I go, but like not a replacement mother, but like a, a mother figure. So yeah. talk to us just a little bit more about that and, and that role. Good, good. Um, well, <clears throat> you mentioned EMDR, uh, which is the kind of cutting edge trauma protocol right now. And what I do in EMDR when I'm working with someone and keep in mind, I have someone for 10 to 13 hours. So I can do a lot of deeper healing because I'm going back with her to those body-based sensations. She felt age zero to two. Yeah. And I'm going to instill a celestial mother is what I call it. So just like a, a lot of us have a concept of, of God that we've had to recreate maybe because the patriarchal God right. was scary or not affirming of our sexuality, not affirming of who we are as women, the rules don't apply. So we've recreated another paternal God. I do that with the women. We create a celestial mother um, because sometimes there's not anyone someone can identify that's in her life um, who could be that mother. So we create that. And um, the celestial mother's in a, a core part of healing. Who's the mother you would have wanted? What are the attributes she would have? And we have a picture of her, and I, I distill that and imprint it during EMDR. So that's one way. And then I work to resource identifying what were you missing? Was it nurturing? Was it protection? Was it guidance? Or all three? And you're not going to be able to find all three in one person on the planet generally as adults. We're not going to find a mother but we can find someone to nurture us right. and we can find somebody else who's protective and we can find someone to guide us. It might not all be in the same person, which is why mother hunger is a form of living with grief because we didn't get it. Yeah. Yeah. Does and that make sense? That answer? Yeah, it does make sense. And it makes me think so. So the whole concept of, of your book and in your work is that look that yes, this, it's you're honoring that yes this happened to you and it's okay that you feel this way and but here are things that you can do to help yourself um satiate that hunger right and these things can't be done alone yeah like we need connection we need relational connection and we need relational connection that fits into what we missed it's really hard to find that if we don't even know what we missed. And most women with mother hunger, because it happened so young, we literally don't know. First of all, there's not been a name without a name. We don't know what's going on. We just feel crazy. Once we name it, there's relief. But then it's like, okay, now what? So a, a lot of that now what has to be answered with the help of someone who 
has a, a vested interest in being kind and directive and loving. Yeah. Another question that I have is that I am curious about if, if women who experience mother hunger tend to be drawn to toxic relationships, toxic people, toxic friendships, whatever it is, because that's familiar because, exactly. um, yeah, just the, the chaos of it is, is familiarity. Exactly. That's exactly what happens, which is, I mean, my first book was for women were struggling with love addiction and sex addiction. And, and I'm by nature very curious and I keep going to the root. What's the root? What's the root? And I found mother hunger for every single woman who has a love addiction or a sex addiction. There was this myth that that was about her dad. It's not right. He may impact it. He may make it worse, but the first love is our mother. And however she imprinted love, how she washed our hair, how she held us, how she fed us, that touch is what's going to feel familiar. And if it was aggressive, it was, if it was um, absent, yeah. if it, um, if she was just spaced out or dissociated because of her own trauma, we're used to people that don't pay attention to us. We replay that. What, what mother hunger is also really holding is within that first year, how she cares for us will determine our attachment style. So we're either going to be somewhat anxious attached, or primarily avoidant attached, if she was either smothering, suffocating, um, or totally gone. Third degree mother hunger is disorganized attachment. And disorganized attachment makes relationships really hard, really, really hard um, of any nature. So you're exactly right. Um, some people call this a trauma bond. Yes. You've probably heard that term, and that's um, really helpful. Betrayal bond is another term I've heard. Um, so there are different ways to look at how that early imprinting affects our future relationships. Um, yeah. Yeah, powerful stuff. Well, and another thing, that, again, that I, that I come back to is with my mother and her addiction is these two different people. I, I've said before, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, um, oh, Gremlins, where they're, but it's this cute little fuzzy little character, this little uh, Mowgli, Mogwai, I think they were called, and just the sweetest little thing. And then, but if you fed them after midnight, they turned into these gremlins and ate people, right? And so I said, my mom was was one of these little creatures because everyone, she's an angel on earth when she's sober. The sweetest, kindest, most beautiful soul I know. But you add vodka and behind closed doors directed at my dad and my sister and I, oh my gosh we saw a person that no one else had really had privilege to see and it was vicious and nasty and horrible. So, so there was almost this dual connection with my mother, depending on the, on the alcohol. Um, yeah. So, well, and that's true. It's, it's, you had the dark and the light, you had two different mothers and that's crazy making. And you point to something that's so important here and why talking about mother hunger, I think is so important most of it happens behind closed doors. So daughters are carrying around a sense of shame because no one saw it. The mother they saw looked really nice. Right. And we saw the other side that was either terrifying or kind of disgusting or, I mean, it, 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 it ranges, but we have the other side of the story and we don't know what to do with that story. So we can either repress it, deny it, ignore it, act like it wasn't there we usually need an addiction to do that, um, which is, and the first things we have available to help us numb out from being afraid of our mother is food. So a lot of us have trouble with food if we have mother hunger. The other thing, the first way we ought to regulate other than thumb sucking is we accidentally find an orgasm by rubbing up against sheets or mattresses or a sibling and an orgasm calms us down. I hear story after story about girls in the shower, in the bathtub with the massager or, you know, finding relief finally from feeling so frightened of their mother. Yeah. And if you're frightened of your mother, you're essentially homeless. Yeah. 
Yeah, because where do you find that? Well, like you said, that you have a hunger inside that you're, yeah, right. you're searching for. And she has to repair the wound for us to feel safe again. But let's say in your situation, if she's drunk and she doesn't even remember it, right. it's hard to repair it. Right. Um, lots of mothers hurt their children and don't know it, and then therefore they don't repair it. So the child stays frightened. If a mother does, though, inadvertently miss a cue or frighten their child and then come back and explain it and say, I'm sorry, and that was about me, and I'm going to do it differently, mother hunger doesn't happen. Yeah. Wow. Well, again, just fascinating because, and I've never said this on the podcast before, but I, I like to tell these stories because I think it helps correlate with what you're saying. But my parents used to make fun of me when I was three. They said, you would walk around with your hand on your pants saying, wee. Good for you. Right? How so, resilient. Yeah. You, yeah. Were soothing your, you were soothing your whole autonomic nervous system in the most resourceful way. You had your own hand. You had your own body. Yeah. But my parents thought it was hilarious. <laughs> I don't think they knew what was happening, but. <laughs> well, probably not, but I'm glad they didn't shame you. Right. Because I think a lot of little girls get shamed when they are um, touching themselves. And then that adds a layer of shame to something they're doing that's purely instinctive. Yeah. And, and I'm thinking like about you said, sucking a thumb. I mean, it's, it's trying to find soothing. Yeah. 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 It's a wonderful resource for auto-regulating when she, when the mother's not there to regulate our nervous system yeah. and how many mothers don't know that. And then shame their children about, you need to stop sucking your thumb before you go to daycare or before you go to kindergarten. Well, right. that's the mother substitute. So if a mother's going to take that away, what's she going to do to replace it? Yeah. Play, spend more time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So anyone who might be listening, who's saying right now, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, I have a three-year-old, I have a nine-year-old, I have a 14-year-old. I, I know like they're recognizing maybe this in, them own, in their own selves, either from their own trauma past or carrying generational trauma right what what are some suggestions to kind of take a step back like you just said play more engage more yeah 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 well first of all i think that developmentally where your child is might make a difference in what you do with this information the common denominator though is if you're a mother and you have a child and you're waking up to your own mother hunger you're waking up to your own new awareness, find a trauma specialist, work with someone who knows how to do EMDR, work with someone who understands complex post-traumatic stress and start healing because you're healing just like your wound passes them to them epigenetically. So will your healing. You will organically become more present as you are more present with yourself. As you start to learn about how to take care of yourself your body becomes more present with your children. They feel that. And however that looks, maybe it means you do play more. Maybe it means suddenly you have more guidance to offer. Here's a great example. I'm writing a book right now. So I'm in writing mode. Um, I'm not always in writing mode. I don't like writing books. So a lot of times I'm not in writing mode and I love it when I'm not in writing mode. But my son, who's 26, is writing essays for graduate school. I got this great opportunity. Most sons at age 26 don't want much guidance from their mothers. You know, they, they just don't. They look to the men in their lives at this point for guidance. And that's normal. Well, he was able to send me his essays. I, would, I was able to actually help edit. We had this back and forth that was like a daily thing, which was also new for us. And it was so rewarding for me that because I've grown up, because I'm in a place in my life where I'm doing something somewhat useful, I could be a guide for him. Yeah. So very rewarding. I don't think we ever run out of chances if we're doing our own work. The best thing I can tell any mother is do your own work. Don't try to tell your kids how to do something you don't know how to do. Beautiful. And I have a 26-year-old son, and he reaches out to me. And so I'm like, oh, my gosh, we are so connected. So I love, I love that. that. <laughs> oh, you do? I love that. Yeah. He just, as a matter of fact, he just helped me record a new intro and outro. He lives in Denver, but... And I'm in Cincinnati, so we're states away. But I said, John, will you help me record a new intro and outro for the podcast? And he was like, absolutely. So I just put it on 
this past Friday's yeah episode. Hooray, John! <laughs> Gary, what a great story! Thanks, thanks. I know I feel like I'm sharing all my stories, but I, I love your stories. They I'm really so, fit with the topic. I, yeah, I relate to everything you're saying, and I just I love this. I love the work you're doing. Um, so, but people can also connect to you. So let's talk about how do people get in touch with you. Uh, I'll put it on the video, but for the audio listeners, how how do they reach out? The best way to reach me is through my website, kellymcdanieltherapy.com. Um, but, and, and maybe this was not the best timing for us to do this because right now I have kind of a temporary hold on that yeah. because I'm writing. And so I'm not taking on anyone for intensives, but I will be again. And so it automatically prompts and sends you to a waiting list. Um, but if you want to just bypass that and get to me and you've got to send me an email, I will respond. It may take me a few days, but, um, Info at kellymcdanieltherapy.com will find me. Um, and I'm happy to hear from folks. I'm just awesome. not taking new intensives right now. Yeah, but, but to be on the list would be awesome, you know, wonderful for people to um, eventually find their way to, to doing sure. that work. So, But also on my website is a great resource page of other clinicians who are aware of my work, who like this work, who are treating mother hunger, and they can go to that resource page and look there. They can also follow me on Instagram. I'm on Instagram. I kind of <clears throat> have some fun with it. Um, and occasionally I'll, pro I'll post a new quote from the new book and, and things like that. Awesome. Well, I'm excited, excited to get my hands on the book and uh, yeah, share it with everyone on podcast page and We'll come back around to it when it's released. Yeah, we could talk again, but it's just so wonderful that you are sharing this information. I think so many women will really benefit from the oh, work you're doing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and well, thank you for the beautiful healing work you are doing in the world. I have to, so I decided new year, um, new, new uh, ideas. So I, I came up with 50 podcast questions. These are just totally crazy fun questions. And if you don't mind answering one of them, um, I have, oh, I thought I had 50 on here, but only fifth. Oh no, there's two pages. So pick a number between one and 50. Oh, that's so, um, wow. <laughs> I'm feeling really vulnerable right now. Um, <laughs> Sorry, okay. you don't have to, if you don't want to. <laughs> I'd love to, I'd love to, I'd love to try this. I'd love to see what happens. Um, okay. So just pick a number. How yeah, about any number one to 50? I don't know why I'm drawn to seven. I'll pick seven. All right, number seven. Oh, this is a fabulous one. If you could host a dinner party with anyone, who would you invite? Are there a limit to how many people I can invite? Oh, no, you can invite whoever you want to. Your little, it can be an intimate little dinner party. Or you yeah. Can have a big old dinner I usually party. don't like to have more than six. All right. I, love, I love to host dinner parties, by the way. <laughs> well, see, look at that. <laughs> one of my favorite things to do. So Terry, I'd have to invite you because oh, thanks. I, I like people selfishly who uh, do similar work and that are engaging and thought, thoughtful in their questioning, who are intelligent and funny and you're all that. So, oh. But you know who I'd really love to have at a dinner party would be Mary Pfeiffer, Pfeiffer, who wrote Reviving Ophelia. That was her bestseller in the 90s. She's recently written a book on, she's 70 now, on aging. She wrote a book probably 10 years ago to therapists, what I would tell a new therapist. I mean, this woman is just someone I think I just would like to be around. So I would invite her. Um, I would love to invite Jeanette Walls, who wrote The Glass Castle. The Glass Castle is one of the most stirring memoirs I've ever read in my life. It will be in the Mother Hunger book under Section 3, Third Degree Mother Hunger. It is her story of growing up. And I'd love to meet her and have her at that dinner party. I'd like to have Hope Edelman at that dinner party who wrote the book Motherless Daughters. That book is written for women who did lose their mothers prematurely. Yeah. But I've found more in that book that's helped me understand my clients than almost any other book. And she's not a therapist. She's a journalist. But I think, yeah. Um, but what daughters go through without a mother is what daughters go through whose mother was not kind or not available or dissociated or traumatized. Right. How's that for a lineup? That's, I want to come to that party. Are you going to host it soon? <laughs> yeah. 
you know, I just need to kind of even see if these women would talk to me. I, I'm sure I've left someone out that I think would be really fun to have. And I'm feeling, I mean, just there, I have a few colleagues, um, right. Laura Parks, who she's an excellent therapist. She treats women and she, she literally sprinkles fairy dust on the people she comes into contact with. And, and she would just be so wonderful to have at that dinner party too. Awesome. Well, I love it. And I would, I would accept gladly. So yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What a great question. I love you have this list of questions that you can, and that's a a lovely note to end on because then I think I've also shared some other wonderful authors that if women resonate with this topic, they might want to go. Wonderful. So anything else that you want to touch on that we didn't have an opportunity to discuss? Oh, oh, maybe I would say this. Because people ask me sometimes, why do I exclusively write for mothers and daughters if I have a son? Like, why am I not writing about mother hunger for boys? Or why am I not writing about father hunger for girls? Or why? And um, I think it's because when I was 21 years old and I was starting graduate work, I came across Adrienne Rich's book of woman born. And in that book, she says the loss of a daughter to a mother and a mother to her daughter is the essential female tragedy. I didn't know at the time that I had mother hunger, but that stirred me and rocked me to the core. Um, Plus, I was studying Shakespeare, so I knew a lot about tragedy, and there were no mothers and daughters that were ever central to tragedy. Disney never puts mothers and daughters central to tragedy, but it is the essential tragedy to lose a mother or for her to lose us. Yeah. Powerful. Powerful. Yeah. Well, again, thank you for taking your pain and giving it as a gift to others. Um, And right back at you. Thanks. (laughs) All right. Well, again, it's been a joy and I'm going to do a quick little close out here. Everyone, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. And remember, until next time, be gentle with yourself. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening today to the Healing Place podcast with your host and trauma warrior, Terry Welbrock. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about Terry, her mission, and the Hope for Healing journey, visit Terry's website at www.terrywellbrock.com. Thank you for liking, commenting, sharing, and offering your reviews on our YouTube channel, audio outlets, and Facebook page. And as Terry reminds us, until next time, remember, be gentle with yourself. I would like to take the opportunity to thank Jennifer Hall and Michelle Trabs for contributing to the Healing Place podcast funding drive on an advocate level, and also Chris Duran and Ann Collins for donating at the friend level. Your support and encouragement of this healing space is a treasure. Thanks again. If you are interested in becoming a sponsor and donor for the Healing Place podcast, just visit my website at terrywalbrock.com and you will find a link on any of those pages. Again, thank you so much for believing in this healing space and supporting it. Take care.